Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. My guest for the hour today is professional speaker, storyteller, and writer Janice Brooks. Uh, she's performing her one-woman show, Traveling Shoes, tonight on the USU campus in Logan. Traveling Shoes depicts eight women of American history, including abolitionist, orator, and women's rights advocate Sojourner Truth, and Underground Railroad heroine Harriet Tubman, as well as civil rights champions Rosa Parks, Barbara Jordan, and Shirley Chisholm. Traveling shows also uh, Traveling Shoes rather also features the stories of Kathy Williams, a former slave who disguised herself as a man to serve as a buffalo soldier shortly after the end of the Civil War. Jane Manning, who was an early convert to the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints in the early 1840s, and Biddy Mason, who grew up a slave in the Deep South before being taken to Utah and eventually to California, Free State. And so the event, uh, Traveling Shoes, is in the Kane uh, uh, Performance Hall on the USU uh, campus, 7.30 tonight. Uh, it is sold out. Tickets are free, but they're, they're all taken at this point. But there might be some no-shows. There might be some uh, seats open up. So if you're interested in, uh, in seeing the one-woman show, certainly uh, you can't take a chance and, and come. You might be able to get in. And there's another opportunity for you to uh, see Janice Brooks. Uh, that is tomorrow morning at 9.30. It's a lecture she's giving uh, at the Kane College of the Arts. This is in the Kent Concert Hall. So plenty of room there. And so if that's an opportunity that you can take advantage of, 9.30 tomorrow morning, you can hear a lecture from uh, Janice Brooks. Janice Brooks, welcome to the program. Good morning. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. So a lot of activities. You've been to classes and, and, and other events uh, prior to this. So we got the performance tonight and then some more tomorrow. Yes, yes, and I had a wonderful opportunity to have some uh, to share lunch with the um, in the Honor Society um, students, and that was just magnificent. And Rebecca Anderson's history class was wonderful, and uh, so uh, and of course being down at a local establishment and meeting some of the townsfolk uh, added to uh, that experience. Mm-hmm. I just I feel so uh, loved here in this community. Well, we're glad that you're here. So uh, let's get a little bit of your history. You've uh, worked in public relations? Um, yes, I have. Um, I work for, uh, as in freelance, um, um, a freelance account executive, managing account executive, and in my own business um, in strategic communication. The majority of my work there was in governmental affairs and public policy, more so than public relations, but um, sometimes... Uh, in the olden days, we had to combine all of those if it was a crisis management situation. We took care of everything in the firm. Mm-hmm. So. And so you um, you do some consulting. Cor- yes, point. correct. Yeah. Right. Um, presently, the majority of uh, the work that I do on the on the uh, what I call the corporate side um, is. Um, mostly strictly business consulting, and um, that ends up being a lot of executive coaching and I'm working with um, senior managers and executive VPs. Um, so what are you what are you coaching them toward? What do you what was um, the flavor of your consultation, I should say? Uh, well, sometimes a company, for example, um, Thirty people on a on a, new, on a strategic plan with the company, so they're envisioning that strategic plan. So I I come in as a facilitator of that um, of you know if that's the case, then I come in as the facilitator of that structure, helping with the communication dynamics, making sure everybody is really bringing their best selves into the verbal dialogue. And then from that, sometimes within that team, there uh, there may be some friction. There may be someone who's in a position where their growth needs to come up to match the vision. And so then that person individually, um, that um, they have better management skills, better people skills, better um better ways to relate to all of the employees under them and their senior peers. Sometimes I'm working with new CEOs, having been a CEO of an interim CEO, uh, which is mostly what I've gone in as an interim CEO in changes. So I can bring those assessment um, parameters and then pass those on, but also working with the dynamic of how does someone new come in and work with uh, and merge into a team. Mm-hmm. And um, um, and it happened by happenstance for me. It happened because I um, my career has been so vast and um, certainly communications 
um, skills was both uh, innate and uh, and I learned a lot. And it's, so it, I kind of fell into it. Mm. Isn't that interesting that for a lot of us, that's just how it happens, right? You just... It, it, you didn't set out for this exactly, yes. but it but it just, uh, thankfully, things match up and, and things happen. Yeah. Uh, so traveling shoes, how you're, you're in business, um, you're doing other things as well, I'm sure. What, how did traveling shoes develop? Um, first, I'm a storyteller. So uh, all of my life, I've had a great um, love of storytelling. I grew up in a family where someone would say, tell that story, you know, and, and it was told over and over again and, and um, you know, with, with great flourish. And, uh, but specifically when um, at the age of 35, um, I had a, a son, uh, my only child. And what I realized that was we decided to homeschool. I was looking for ways to create community around other homeschooling families. And so I was a lover of Chautauquas. And, um, and for uh, Chautauquas, I mean, this dramatic first portrayal of a person in terms, you learn all about their history so that you could become that person and go into an environment and someone could ask you a lot of questions about them as mm-hmm. if you were that person. And so as a result of that, I was organizing this event and had found all the people to play the different parts. And everyone says, well, who are you going to do? And, uh, and I said, OK, I'll be Rosa Parks. And it started with Rosa Parks and then someone in the audience who was there that evening. Uh, and so the children were studying and then they had to ask us all the questions, the adults. Mm-hmm. And someone asked me to come perform uh, Rosa Parks for uh, an event at their college Um at George Wade College, and I did. And then from there, someone kept asking me to come do Rosa Parks. And so uh, I actually decided to incorporate that with public speaking, which I was doing a little bit at the time, talking about education and how learning from... So it segued into, at the time when I was speaking about non-traditional ways to educate as a homeschool uh, family. And... Um, and so uh, I started doing Sojourner Truth, and, um, and, and that brought me to those two people, at the end, those two women. And then um, a year, about 14 months ago, uh, more over a year, I had decided I was going to take a little bit of time from my life, and I wanted to do something new. I, like I said, I just finished a, a tremendous CEO project that I had been on, and I wanted something artistic and so I decided I was going to create a show and traveling shoes I told with what to call it um, and I thought okay one of the significant things about Rosa Parks was that people don't know about Rosa Parks or you don't hear a lot about is that during the Montgomery bus boycott on the 363 days of that boycott 66% of the bus riders were domestic servants who went into the city to clean and caretake, you know, their white families' homes. So they were the ones that was most hit by the bus boycott. And um, advocates throughout the whole world sent shoes to those women who said, stay off the bus. They were wearing their shoes out. And so even the Queen of Scotland sent shoes <laughs> to, to Rosa Parks to distribute. And that was women saying, let's step in another woman's shoes. So that was so significant, a one woman stepping into another woman's shoes, like I was doing when I stepped into Rosa Parks' shoes, when I stepped in Sojourner Truth's shoes. And I thought, okay, there's tr- shoes, women and stepping in and then there's transportation Hmm. so you have the bus i thought okay you got the underground railroad i'll add harriet tutman and with um with barbara jordan who ended up being in a wheelchair and being wheeled through the congressional halls and um through her uh, multiple sclerosis so uh, parkinson's and i 
So I saw these themes coming together, and traveling shoes became the synergy for it for me. Interesting. Yeah, that, that is a nice way to unify this, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. So what's, I don't know what your goal, the goal originally, as you say, was to unify, provide some, I guess, some uh, connections between homeschooled kids, right, and yes. families. Uh, uh, so for Traveling Shoes now, what's the what's the goal? It's educating people, you know, fascinating history. I hadn't known that about Rosa Parks, for example. What What's the goal? Well, I, I'm going to, the goal first and foremost was just for me to create a, a creative project. I think of it as someone who's taking a painting class and they want to learn how to paint. And so I had only thought I was going to prepare this great artistic feast as a one meal. And I, I said it was going to be like a PhD project for me, which was at the time I was considering whether I was going to go back and complete a PhD that I had started in human and cognitive development. And I only saw it as a one-time thing, almost like you make a wonderful dinner and you have a great dinner party and people come and it's, you know, you don't do it again the next, you know, maybe you do it again the next weekend, but it's not the same party. And so it took on a life of its own. Right now, what it has grown into, what I have received from the people who have seen the show, heard about the show, my show sold out in St. George, uh, Utah, and like 90 people were waiting to see it, and they said, you have got to do this again. And and the feeling that I received from the responses from people is that this encouraged me in my own life. Um, a, a woman said, you know, I get up every morning, I have five children, and I get, we'd be talking about this, I have five children, and then I have to go over and caretake my grandfather and my elderly father together, and then go to work. And, um, you know, and people are battling first world problems uh, in a way that, um, you know, is... It's another 800 miles to be walked in our everyday life. And, and for some people, they said, I had thought I was going to do this thing. They don't have that, that kind of consideration. But it said, you know, I'm going to open that business. I had a friend of mine who said, you know, I'm opening that florist shop. And um, so courage and um, it connected with some human emotion inside of us. And that's the power of oral storytelling. Mm. Um, it's a first person, it's a third person, and then it's your story in the midst of all that you've heard. It connects to it and enlivens something inside of you. Mm. That's very true, isn't it? You, When you hear another person's story, you, you tend to put yourself in that or imagine yourself walking alongside that person yes. or wondering if you would have the courage to do whatever they're doing. Or it, it, it definitely is a, is a case of, uh, I find myself, for myself when I'm reading biographies, I'm definitely putting myself there and, and sort of comparing myself. Often it's, a, it's not a good comparison. I wonder if I would measure up. But, but, you, but I do find inspiration as well. Yes. And that, that I guess you, you're finding that as well with, with people who hear these stories. Yes, and even in my um, own life, uh, in the pursuit of coming back to it at almost 60 years old and coming back to the power of stories, saying to my, here I was saying, you know, I'm going to take some time off, thinking it changed me. I don't have time to take time off, mm -hmm. you know. And mm -hmm. that was when I thought, you know, uh, Harriet Tubman worked until she was 93 years old. And, you know, I was like, wait a minute, I don't have that. It was a, uh, it was far too leisurely mm -hmm. for me to think that, um, um, you know, I was going to pursue some other things. It, it, it created, it pulled up something to the surface for me also. Mm. We're going to take a break. When we come back, we'll have more with Janice Brooks. We have her for the hour, and you're welcome to join this conversation if you'd like. Your question or comment is welcome at 1-800-826-1495, 1-800-826-1495. You can join us by email to upraxis at gmail.com, upraxis at gmail.com. We're on Twitter, at Utah Public Radio, and you can join us on our Facebook page as well. Um, we... Uh, 
Uh, Janice Brooks is here, presented by uh, Utah Public Radio, uh, and uh, her presentation is uh, also a part of the USU Provost Series on Instructional Excellence in Celebration of Black History Month. Traveling Shoes is co-sponsored by the College of Humanities and Social Sciences, Kane College of the Arts, Office of the Executive Vice President Provost, Office of Global Engagement, Center for Women and Gender, Access and Diversity Center, and Department of History. And the performance of Traveling Shoes is tonight in the Kane Performance Hall on the USU campus. The tickets are sold out. They're free tickets, but sold out. But uh, there may be some uh, no-shows, and uh, there might be some uh, few tickets come available. So certainly uh, come at 7.30 tonight on the USU campus, and you may be able to get in. And you certainly will be able to get in tomorrow for a lecture, 9.30 in the morning, uh, in the Kent Concert Hall. Uh, so more following this break. Consider this not so much a promo, really, as a quiz. Here you go. U.S. people pay the least. Compare that to Germany, Denmark, France, United Kingdom. They all pay a lot more. For what? Internet? Healthcare? Water? I'm Kai Rizdal. Water, water everywhere and really, really cheap. Next time on Marketplace from APM. Thursday night at 7 on Utah Public Radio. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Crumb Brothers Artisan Bread in Logan. Open for breakfast Monday through Friday at 7 a.m. and Saturdays at 8 a.m., offering a selection of French pastries and a variety of sweet and savory menu items. Details at crumbbrothers.com. Cellist Elisa Weilerstein joins the Aspen Chamber Symphony in concert to play a cello concerto by Joseph Haydn. Plus, we'll head to Seattle to hear guitarist Anna Vitovich give a moving performance of solo guitar music from Paraguay. I'm Fred Child. Join me for the next Performance Today from APM. Thursday morning at 11 on Utah Public Radio. You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. My guest for the hour is professional speaker, storyteller, and writer Janice Brooks. She is in Logan to perform her one-woman show, Traveling Shoes, and that is tonight in the Kane Performance Hall on the USU campus, 7 o'clock. I've been saying 7.30, so if you, if you show up at 7.30, you'll miss part of the performance. Uh, you may not be able to get in. Uh, the performance is sold out, but we understand that uh, there might, might be some tickets come available. Some people may not show up, so certainly if you, uh, if you want to watch the performance, you, you might be able to get in. Uh, just come um, by 7 o'clock uh, tonight. The Kane Performance Hall on the USU campus, Traveling Shoes. You certainly would be able to get into the Kent Concert Hall for a lecture by Janice Brooks, and that is tomorrow morning at 9.30. Kent Concert Hall on the USU campus. Uh, Janice Brooks, uh, in traveling shoes, uh, portrays eight women, uh, heroines of American history, including Sojourner Truth, Harriet Tubman, Barbara Jordan, Shirley Chisholm, Rosa Parks. I think we most of us know those names. Uh, in Utah, you may know the name of Jane Manning, an early convert to the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints in the uh, 1840s. But I had uh, I'd never heard of Cathay Williams. A fascinating history. We'll get into this. Former slave who disguised herself as a man to serve as a buffalo soldier. And Biddy Mason, who grew up a slave in the Deep South before being taken to Utah and eventually to a free state of California. So, Jess Brooks, you said that you developed this. Originally, you wanted to present this to, to people being homeschooled. You want to provide some connection. And you were doing this as, as a Chautauqua. So that's my question. It's one thing to study, say, Rosa Parks for your own edification or for a class or something. And it's another thing, I imagine, to study her so that you can portray her and answer questions, right? People can interact with you as if you were Rosa Parks. That's a whole different thing. It is. It, and um, it there is a lot of not just reading from the factual data, but also reading what other people have said and written about her. So the circumference of just the data from historical data in relationship to that individual, but also there's another sphere that you have to step out of so that that you can embody the fullness of that person based on the inner and outer aspect of them. And um, because that's the, that's the public persona that you're giving 
when you become that person and it's bringing that third person into into the knowledge base um, to create uh, certainly to create it into a performance piece not as a lecture piece which I um, that's um, the the way that I'm doing them for uh, for this traveling shoe show I actually do them as a performance piece a dramatic portrayal piece so they are within the con um, they are set within um, I break the fourth wall as a storyteller mm-hmm. so the audience is there with me but it's in the first person mm-hmm. as um, as opposed to um, the lecture type series and mm-hmm. um, Let's let's take a few minutes uh, with each of these. Okay. These women. You, you've picked eight women for, yeah. for the show. You could have picked others, I'm sure. But uh, and so with many of these, we would have we have little historical hooks that we by which we categorize these women, right? Yes. Rosa Parks refused to give up her seat on the bus uh, during the the boycott <laughs> that led to the boycott, I guess. But uh, you know, Harriet Tubman, the Underground Railroad. Et cetera, et cetera. But you're getting sort of behind that and, and, and telling us more. Yes. Uh, so let's start with. Well, and I'll start with another book. So when we talk about Rosa Parks, I'm going to go to Sojourner Truth. So a hundred, um, a um, hundred and five years before Rosa Parks gave up her seat on the bus in um, Montgomery, Alabama, Sojourner Truth stopped a a bus in New York. And not only did she stop the bus in New York, she it um, written commentary says that the whole street stood still, and she stood in front of a bus. Here's this six-two woman, a monolith. Of she stood in front of this bus and refused to move. She sued the New York bus system and won. So, you know. so now you have this polarity between um, the bus and someone building the impetus for um, injustice. Sojourner Truth. The other part, something about Sojourner Truth is we lead into her because she is the first person who emerges. And um, and I find Sojourner Truth and Harriet Tubman are the most complex Sojourner Truth, uh, for example, many, uh, she was born Isabel Bumfrey. She spoke Dutch until she was nine years old. That was her native language. Um, sold as a slave for $100 along with her family, but that's the price that, that she garnered even as a child and um, because of this well-endowed body. and um, But she had, as Isabel Bumfrey, uh, when uh, um, her master... Oh, she had five. She had thirteen children, but at the time when he had said that he would give her her freedom, if she spun one hundred pounds of wool, and she did that, and he did not give her her freedom, so she walked off the plantation. She walked off, and she prayed to ask God to show her where to go. And, um, and, but she had, in her early life, she had quite a complexity because at 12 years old, she was sold temporarily to a man and she worked in a tavern. So she learned how to cuss and smoke. And, and I think that's where she got a little bit of her vigilant nature from. She had to survive that 18 months in that environment. And that was, you know, you take that, that's from someone who's 12 to 14, but because she was large, more than likely they can probably thought of her as an older uh, um, uh, an older female than a 14 year old so she bought that to this midlife here she has these children and she's determined to get off of this plantation and so she walks away and um and and every writing that she talks about she said i did not run away she did not want to be considered a runaway slave she said i walked away because that was the right thing to do mm. and um, and so but she had these spiritual experience after she left she lived with the Quakers and um, and that solidified a lot of things in her mind um, about God um, the other part of Sojourner Truth that um, I think is is 
really significant also. And I'll put this in context with Frederick Douglass. And so when Frederick Douglass was moving away from, a lot of people know him, when Frederick Douglass was moving away from the Garrisonian abolitionist movement and um, Sojourner Truth was very committed to the doctrinal aspect and of abolitionist movement and she never wavered from that and in today's world we would have said she called Frederick Douglass on the carpet Mm -hmm. and Frederick Douglass said that God would never be involved if we had to take it in our own hands and and she um, heckled him at a meeting and said is God dead Mm -hmm. and so um, she was very vibrant then Harriet Tubman that um most the under most people uh, know of her as the you know the conductor on the Underground Railroad, and what's fascinating um, first and foremost, but uh, also that even though she suffered from temporal lobe epilepsy, that's what we know now because at 13 years old she was hit in the head uh, with an by an overseer. She was hit in the head with a um, uh, a piece of metal, and um, you know, had a brain concussion. And so from that time on, what we know is a co- in a cognitive nature or in brain damage, she had heightened sensory awareness. She could hear sounds clearly. So it's almost if you lose one sense, you get another in a keener sense. And so she had this keen sense of sound. She had a keen sense of smell. And these things were the things that helped her read the signs read she could feel people and she knew when they were close and we know these narratives now because of the authenticity some of the slave narratives or most of them at that time were written by there were white people who would write the commentary and they always wrote those certainly from a second person voice because they were interpreting and but now there is so much, we've unearthed a lot of, certainly in reference to Harriet Tubman, where you have journal entries that collaborate what she said to five different people and what they wrote, and that becomes the significant thing about Harriet Tubman now. So what we know is that she bribed people. Uh, she would raise money to bribe uh, what she called in stockholders, and um, so she would play, pay Canadian guards, and she would even pay black slaves to, um, and that was risky because, like on uh, on her last journey, which when she went back to retrieve her sister and found out that her sister was dead, and she decides to bring five slaves and a baby on this trip, and the. John, who comes with her, was the overseer's overseer. And he had a bounty of $4,000 on his head. Now, to put that into perspective, at that time, for $300, you could buy a five-acre farm. And so sometimes investors were investors because they wanted someone to get caught so they could they could reap the benefit of their investment. So she had to be keen on who to trust. And um, and so she would test people. She would give them fraudulent information to see if they would tell. And then she wouldn't pay them. So uh, she was crafty, you know, and uh, certainly that's why John Brown and um, uh, the Union soldiers hired her as a Union scout and a nurse after um, in the war, after um, the Civil War. So she was quite... Um, she was phenomenal in that way. Cathay Williams, Buffalo Soldier. Mm-hmm. Buffalo Soldiers is very complex. Um, uh, my uh, great-grandfather was a Buffalo Soldier, and uh, all of my uncles, if you go into their homes, they all have Buffalo Soldiers really? regalia in their front room. Interesting. So uh, I grew up with stories of Buffalo Soldiers. 
and um, and I grew up hearing about Cathay Williams because Cathay Williams, my family was from Little Rock, Arkansas, uh, and uh, so these stories were surrounding our family all the time about the first um, African American woman who joined the army. Now there were other women who joined the army as men also, uh, but she was the first African American woman to join. Now. But she had been in the army prior to joining as a man. What had happened was um, when the Union soldiers came into Jefferson, Missouri, that she was taken as contraband. So as that contraband, she was a cook and a washerwoman, even though she didn't even know about cooking. General, um, She actually was at the Battle of P with General Sheraton as a washerwoman and a cook. And so she saw that side of the military and thought, oh, wait a minute. I'm going to get in on another level of the military so that I, it's hard on both sides. So when she joined as a man, she thought that that was going to give her a reprieve from the arduous nature of cooking and cleaning and laundry and all, you know, it was hard and uh, certainly found out that it was equally as hard. Um, And so she joined, um, as an infryman, but had wanted to be a cavalryman. She loved horses and um, she was good with the horses, even as a washerwoman um, that um, all the white officers would observe her being able to have this instinctive nature with horses. So Colonel Clark, who was actually the officer over the all black regiment and um, had kept prom kept promising her that, you know, she would get more time with the horses and get more time with the horses, which is why she was OK being an Indian scout, because she would watch the Indians and through her visual looking, she would mimic with she would learn how by just watching. And that was their role. They were watching um, um, the they were doing looking for hostile Indians and they were the first line of observance. Um uh, they were the observation unit kind of thing. So uh, so it, her time was short. Uh, uh, her discharge record after she said she was feeble. Um, the marching, uh, she lost uh, all of her toes on both feet. She lost all of mm. her toes, had to be amputated. Um, and... Um, so um, you know her history is quite uh, is is quite phenomenal for a very short period in the military, uh, as a as a Buffalo soldier, um, and then um, uh, Biddy Mason. Uh, well, let's go to Jane Manning because Jane Manning, who was a convert to the church. Let me pause you right there uh, okay. before before we uh, go on. A fascinating history. I want to take a brief break uh, and uh, reset the scene here as well. I'm talking with Janice Brooks. Uh, who is in uh, Logan for several events. Uh, the big event is tonight at 7 o'clock in the Kane Performance Hall on the USU campus. Uh, she's performing her one-woman show, Traveling Shoes. We've been hearing some of the fascinating stories of the women she'll portray tonight. Uh, that performance is sold out, but you might still be able to get in. Uh, so go uh, by 7 o'clock uh, tonight at the uh, Performance Hall, and uh, there, there might be some tickets come available. Uh, which are free, but uh, but sold out at this point, but uh, some might come available. That's tonight at 7 o'clock in the Kane Performance Hall on the OSU campus. And there's an event tomorrow morning that you certainly will be able to get into. This is in the Kent Concert Hall, 9.30 tomorrow morning. There's a lecture by uh, Janice uh, Brooks. Uh, Traveling Shoes portrays um, Harriet Tubman, Rosa Parks, Sojourner Truth, Barbara Jordan, Shirley Chisholm, uh, some stories of the less well-known, Kathy Williams, former slave who disguised herself as a man to serve as a Buffalo soldier. We just heard that story. And we'll get into the discussion of Jane Manning, an early convert to the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints in the 1840s, and Biddy Mason, who grew up a slave in the Deep South before being taken to Utah and eventually California, a free state. We'll take a break when we come back more with Janice Brooks. On the next Putumayo World Music Hour... It's a Valentine's Day special with love songs from Brazil, Ireland, France, Nigeria, and Australia. I'm Dan Storper. And I'm Rosalie Howarth. Join us for Love Songs Around the World, the next Putumayo World Music Hour. Friday night at 10 on Utah Public Radio. 
Gas prices across the nation are the lowest they've been in years, and consumers seem to be pretty happy about the savings. But with these low prices come some hidden costs. In the month of December, oil prices have decreased between 35 to 40 percent. We're kind of in uncharted territory. In UPR's new series, The Costs of Oil, will bring you stories from places like eastern Utah, where the local economy depends on drilling. We'll look into what low prices at the pump are doing to Utah's already notorious air quality, the state budget, and the push to develop green energy. Tune in February 9th through the 20th for The Costs of Oil, a UPR news series. You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. My guest for the hour is Janice Brooks. Uh, she is a professional speaker, storyteller, and writer, and uh, she's developed a, a fascinating one-woman show. It's called Traveling Shoes. It portrays eight um, women of American history, including Sojourner Truth, Harriet Tubman, who we've talked about, Rosa Parks, also uh, Barbara Jordan, Shirley Chisholm, uh, and some uh, people you may not have heard of. We just heard the story before the break of Kathy Williams, a former slave who disguised herself as a man to serve as a buffalo soldier. We're going to be talking about Jane Manning, an early convert to the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints in the early 1840s, and Benny Mason, uh, who has a fascinating history as well. Uh, we There's a performance tonight. By the way, before the events uh, in Logan are presented by Utah Public Radio, so we're, we're happy to have you here, Janice Brooks. And uh, also... Uh, presented by the USU Provo Series on Instructional Excellence in Celebration of Black History Month. Traveling Shoes is co-sponsored by the College of Humanities and Social Sciences, Kane College of the Arts, Office of the Executive Vice President, Provost, Office of Global Engagement, Center for Women and Gender, Access and Diversity Center, and the Department of History. So 7 o'clock tonight, you might be able to get in, even though it's sold out. They tell us that uh, there might be some tickets come available, which are free, by the way. 7 o'clock, Kane Performance Hall on the USU campus. And then tomorrow morning, uh, you can certainly get into the Kent Concert Hall, 9.30 in the morning tomorrow for a lecture featuring uh, Janice Brooks. Uh, just to finish up with um, Kathy Williams, who, who passes a, a man because she wanted to you know, move on from being a cook and and washerwoman. She wanted to get on the horses, right, and, and become yes, a buffalo soldier. Sure. And make more money. Make, make, make more, more money. money. <laughs> it's a fascinating uh, episode. Uh, Got a lot of response oh, a year or two ago here on uh, on Axis Utah. Um, a uh, retired dentist, uh, Mr. Cantwell, found a fascinating history, and he 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 couldn't get beyond just the kernel of the of the facts. So he wrote a historical novel just imagining this. But the the facts are very uh, fascinating, and this kind of made me think of this. A um, it's called Mother George. Mm-hmm. So this midwife in a small town in southern Idaho. For 40 years, delivered all the kids, um, a black woman. And upon her death, it was discovered that she was a man. So what would make a man, you know, be, become a, pass as a, as a woman in this case? Um, you know, suppose she, he wanted to practice medical profession, could not do that as an African-American man. So that, that kind of, it, it's, it's very interesting, especially with more defined roles and, and and harder rules, I guess, in those times, that uh, you, you had to make these transitions at the risk of being discovered, I, I suppose, right? There would have been Absolutely. penalties if you were discovered, for, for yes. example, Kathy Williams. Well, and this is a, a sideways commentary, but I think it, it it's certainly appropriate here. And that is if you take the 13th Amendment, the 14th Amendment, and the 15th Amendment, and I I, um, I asked this question of some students in Rebecca Anderson's history class, 27, uh, in a history class yesterday. And that is, um, for a, why would a white slave owner give the Negro slave the right to vote before his mother, his sister, mm. and his wife? And so we see that it was privileges to be a man. So even for white women who joined under these some disguises to join the military and that's mall picket, you know, you have all the names. And so um, that it it ruminates around in my brain. I don't I have not come to 
a resolve in my own mind about that yet. Mm. It it's a window that remains open for me, mm. and uh, and I think that's why we see. Um, Kathy Williams' story and Ma George, more Ma, Ma George's story, yeah. and uh, it was easier to pass um, through. So, uh, not only did, in many ways, uh, the slave male received his citizenship outside of being property before white women. Mm-hmm. And many decades. Many before. decades. Right. Yes. Yeah. It was in 1919, even though we can be quite proud of Utah setting in, as a territory, giving women the right to vote. We can we can certainly celebrate that here. And um, but I think that um, that is really it's just uh, it's it's just the way it was mm-hmm. and just understanding it as the way it was. Mm-hmm. It's one of those things you can't rationalize. Yeah. Uh, it's uh, it's. It's the complexity of the time doesn't make it rational. Mm-hmm. Yes, and uh, but Jane Manning. Do, can we go into Jane Manning? Yeah, yes, I really, I, uh, yes. I think Jane Manning. Uh, for me, when I'm studying a lot and I get weary, it's almost like I always go back to Jane Manning's temperament. Mm-hmm. In many ways, she has that somewhat Rosa Parks temperament. But um, uh, and um, so, but Jane Manning was born free. And um, uh, she was not born a slave. And, um, and yeah, she was an early convert to the church. And, um, and so... This is the, the early part of the 19th century. The early part, uh, yeah. yes. Mm-hmm. And, um, but remembering at that time that a free person could... A free person, if a, a, a male was free and he had a child with a slave those children were slaves they had no ownership of their children so um, Jane Manning was born free um, and um, when the one of the most wonderful things of her trip to uh, Nauvoo with a, um, Brigham Young called them her band I just I, I really love that and was that the power of giving a blessing that's one of the stories that to me resonated so deeply with me and one was when um when the group was on their way to Nauvoo and they all suffered from frostbite and uh bloody feet and um she prayed over and gave a blessing. She believed that she had the power to give the blessing, to heal the feet so that they could walk further. And that happened. And then they went to the next town and there was a child who was ill in that town. And um, and these are from archives that I called through the church and the Genesis organization. And that child her band had said, well, you blessed our feet and we were healed. And so she blessed that child. And that child who was ill became well. And that was even before she got to Nauvoo. And, um, and so, but she was the leader. And when she arrived in um, Nauvoo and was welcoming to Brigham Young's home and Emma and Brigham said to her, he called uh, Emma to call all of um, people together, and they were in a room, and they had chairs around the wall. And uh, and he said, tell us about your journey, and she began to cry, you know, in that moment. And um, and that we've, you know, we've left our home, and, uh, and Emma said, you'll always have a home with us. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so the, uh, and she stayed with many of, uh, her mother went on to work and her sisters went to work somewhere else and she stayed in the Brigham Young's house and um, her room was across. She'd have to walk through Brigham Young's mother's room to get to her room. And so uh, in her uh, narrative, the one that was actually printed in the Salt Lake Tribune, uh, and she talks about walking through and oftentimes spending time in there talking with her. Mm. So, uh, and of course, there's that story of one time that um, uh, 
you know, she was asked to do some laundry and the sacred garment was there. And um, so, uh, but she was certainly benevolent. She sent money down to donate for the St. George Temple and uh, was a great tither and um, to the church and, um, you know, was quite prolific in, in needlework and crochet and embroidery and just a loving spirit mm-hmm. would give of herself and her things readily. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We just have about uh, three minutes left. I wonder if we could hear about Betty Mason. Fascinating. Um, I had not been familiar with this history. Yeah. So Betty Mason, um, Betty Mason um, as a child was, and, and there are many stories about what she bought, what she purchased. Some people I've said the truest story was that she was given to um, Robert Smith and Emma Crosby Smith, not Emma Smith, another Emma, as a child, as a wedding present. And that in itself makes people in our day and time think you give someone a person for a wedding present. And um, and so they were converts. They were in Mississippi. They were converts to the Mormon church. And uh, so when Robert Smith came to Nauvoo and Brigham Young appealed to him to get rid of his slaves, and he didn't. So then when he comes to Salt Lake, he was on a, uh, came into Salt Lake. And at one point, they had to spend some time with a sick battalion. Biddy Mason was a midwife and, um, and a nurse. What we know now is that Biddy Mason had three children, and those children were Robert Smith's. And we know that from DNA testing. And uh, and she was one of the slaves he did not want to give up. And so um, so they went to Salt Lake, and then um, Brigham Young again uh, implored him to give up his slaves. And then he sent him to the San Bernardino mission. And when they got there, they realized, oh, that was a free state. But you had to petition the court for your freedom. So at the time when Robert Mason figured this out, he wanted to go to, he was, I feel, some of the narratives said that there was a, there was some entanglement between Brigham Young not happy with, with Robert Smith and the slavery situation. So he was, uh, Biddy Mason appealed to the court because there were the free slaves had told her how to do the process. So, so that stopped his trip and waylaid his trip to go to Texas. And so on the court date, blacks could not show up in court, but she was able to get an audience with the judge and the judge gave her her freedom. And, and Robert Smith did not show up in court, so he lost his rights to testify. Mm-hmm. And so she maintained in San Bernardino. Uh, there's much to be said about her, but probably the the things that is most significant really is that uh, um, by the time in the late 1800s, around 1887, she had amassed about $300,000. Wow. Um, she built the first African Episcopal church. Uh, she was a midwife all of her life and a nurse. She was one of the wealthy women in um, California. And even to the, this day, her home on Spring Street uh, is celebrated. And in 1987, they enacted uh, November the 16th as Biddy Mason Day. Fascinating history, and you can you can hear more. Uh, you may be able to get in tonight, uh, seven o'clock, the Kane Performance Hall on the USU campus. Tickets are sold out, but we understand uh, some might come available. So seven o'clock tonight, Kane Performance Hall on the USU campus. Traveling Shoes, one woman show uh, by Janice Brooks, performed by Janice Brooks. She's uh, been my guest uh, today on Access Utah, and another opportunity for you. This one you can certainly get into. It's a it's a lecture that's free and open to the public. And it's in the Kent Concert Hall on the USU campus tomorrow morning at 9.30. Janice Brooks, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Oh, my goodness. Thank you. And uh, thanks, for, uh, thanks for coming to Logan for all these events. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure to be here. Uh, these, all these events are presented by Utah Public Radio. We're glad to have Janice Brooks in town. And uh, also uh, the show Traveling, Shows, Traveling Shoes is uh, part of the USU Provo series on instructional excellence in celebration of Black History Month, co-sponsored by many other um, entities on the USU campus.
So uh, Janice Brooks, uh, tonight, 7 o'clock, you might be able to get in, and uh, tomorrow morning, 9.30 in the Kent Concert Hall. Uh, We hope you'll join us for Access Utah tomorrow, and thanks for listening today. It's the Beehive Archive on Utah Public Radio. I'm Megan Van Frank. This week, learn about Welsh immigrants who brought with them valuable skills that laid the foundation for Utah's early mining industry. First this. I'm Cynthia Buckingham, director of the Utah Humanities Council. Beehive Archive is brought to you on Utah Public Radio by the Utah Humanities Council with the generous support of the Lawrence T. and Janet T.D. Foundation. UHC is proud to partner with community organizations to tell Utah stories as part of our statewide tour of the Smithsonian exhibition, Journey Stories. Tune in each week for a new Utah Journey story from the Beehive Archive. Welcome to the Beehive Archive, a two-minute look at some of the most pivotal and peculiar events in Utah's history. Like other countries in Europe during the 19th century, Wales felt the effects of the Industrial Revolution. Rapid increases in population and harsh working conditions in manufacturing and coal mining led to worker riots and clashes with factory and mine owners. The first Mormon missionaries arrived in Wales in 1840 and had great success in cities dealing with poverty and social conflict. But for many of the Welsh converts, the promise of a new life in America was not always realized. Once settled in Utah, these Welsh immigrants sought to improve their circumstances, yet found their old lives were hard to leave behind. Their specialized coal mining skills were naturally sought after by Mormon leaders setting up industries in an effort to create a self-sufficient economy. In 1854, two Welsh miners, John Price and John Rees, were assigned to tap a source of coal located at the foot of the Sandpitch Mountains in central Utah. Nearby the new mine, they established a town called Coalbed, which they later renamed Wales in honor of their homeland. The community was populated solely by immigrants from the British Isles, a little bit of home transplanted to Utah. When a disastrous accident in the Cummer Mine back in Wales claimed 114 lives in 1856, the Welsh miners in Utah were no doubt reminded that the harsh and dangerous working conditions they had fled could someday become a reality in Utah. In peak years, the mines near the town of Wales employed 200 men before giving way to larger, more profitable mines in nearby Carbon County. Those, too, drew many Welshmen in their skills. In 1900, when Carbon County's Schofield mine disaster claimed more than 200 lives, many of them Welsh, those earlier fears of recreating dangerous working conditions were sorely realized. Like many immigrants, Welsh settlers in Utah duplicated to some degree the lives they had tried to leave behind. This episode of the Beehive Archive was contributed by Michelle Hill. Sources and past episodes may be found at utahhumanities.org. For the Beehive Archive, a production of the Utah Humanities Council, I'm Megan Van Frank.